Good morning, church. Good to see you here this morning. Uh, we're going to open God's Word together and study it. Open your Bible to the New Testament book of 1 Peter. All right, so 1 Peter chapter 2, we're uh, wrapping up the brand new series next week. So we got this week and then one more. Uh, then there will be a mini-series after that and then heading into the fall. Uh, but I hope this time of studying God's Word and looking at basically the doctrine of regeneration, the implications of what happens when God makes us alive. Uh, so that's what we've been looking at week after week, and we got a couple more here. First Peter chapter 2, verse 9 is where I'm going to read from God's Word. The Apostle Peter writes these words under divine inspiration. Verse 9, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession, so that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Dear friends, I urge you as strangers and exiles to abstain from sinful desires that wage war against the soul. Conduct yourselves honorably among the Gentiles so that when they slander you as evildoers, they will observe your good works and will glorify God on the day he visits. So where does brand new come from? We know this, if we've studied God's word, is that we aren't born into this world that are, with a heart that's running toward God. We're, we come into this world with a heart that's running from God, not running to God. That's why the Apostle Paul says, there's no one good, there's no one who's seeking after God. That is, apart from the grace of God, all we're doing is running away from Him. Until grace comes and shines in our lives and opens our eyes and regenerates us and makes us new, all we're doing is running further, faster, away from God, right? So, we're not born with a heart that loves God and runs toward God. We're born and come into this world with a heart that runs from God. And through, this is how this works. The dynamic of the work of God, the triune God, is that through the hearing of the message of the gospel, which is charged with divine power for salvation, when we hear the message of the gospel attended by the work of the Holy Spirit alone, God does something, <laughs> He brings us out of death and into life. He brings us out of slavery and into sonship. He brings us, as Peter says here, out of darkness and into light. So everything changes. Our desires start changing. Our allegiances change. Our purpose changes. Our priorities change. Everything starts changing. That's why the Apostle Paul would say that if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. All things have passed away. All things have become new. It's a radical change. So why this series? Here's, this is in your notes if you're taking notes. Let's never speak of becoming a Christian as anything less than utterly revolutionary. <laughs> That's really the subtext under every message in this entire series. He changes us. God changes us from the inside out. And then, as we're going to see in this text... Once we're found, we were lost and we're found, he turns us from the found to the finders. He turns us around, points us at the world and says, look what the gospel can do. Look at, 
look what the life of God in you, indwelling you by his spirit, can do in a person's life. It's, Christianity isn't just talk, it's power. It's an internal dynamic. It's life-altering. It's supernatural. And so in our text, the Apostle Peter directs us to two realities, gospel identity and gospel mission. Gospel identity and gospel mission. So God moves us from lost to found, that's identity, and then from found to finders, that's mission. And, and the two are related in sequence. It matters which one comes first. Gospel identity propels a gospel mission. So let's look at that first. Gospel identity, you belong to God. You belong to God. You see those words, you are a chosen race, verse nine, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession, right? So often in scripture, we come across texts where God is reminding us of our standing before him, of what he has done in us, for us, unilaterally, by his grace. It's not something that we cooperated with. He comes and descends with great power and rescues us from our sins, what God has done for us. And so often, that's what's featured in the New Testament. It is the, it's the indicative that drives the imperative. It's the what we are by virtue of the grace of God that enables us to do what we do empowered by the grace of God. So if you're a follower of Jesus, Follower of Jesus Christ, I'm gonna read your testimony to you in a couple of passages of scripture. Here's your story. 1 Corinthians 6, 11. You were washed. You were sanctified. That means you were set apart by God for his purposes. So you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified. You were declared righteous in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. You, you see how the Apostle Paul there in 1 Corinthians, he's featuring a definitive act, not a progressive, you know, a dimmer pack. It is a light switch. It is a, you went from here to here in the definitive grace of God. Here's another one, 1, 1 John 3, 1. Here's your story. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. We don't try to be children of God, we are children of God. Sometimes we act like we're not, but that's part of the apostle's point. Don't act like you're not children of God when you are. Don't kick against your identity. Don't kick against what God has already done. So God makes us new in part, friends, by reminding us of who we are. So much of the New Testament is unpacked by that statement. God is making us new by reminding us that we are new by virtue of our new identity. This gospel identity in 1 Peter chapter two comes in the form of descriptions of what God has done, not with the believer, but for the believer and to the believer. It begins with this, you are a, you see those words, chosen race. You've been singled out by the grace of God. You didn't deserve it, but it happened. In the mystery of God, he went and called you by name, not just some general mass, you. If you've put your faith in Jesus, he called you by name, brought you to himself. The first thing our text says about every follower of Jesus is a thing of wonder because it pushes all of our other identity markers back 
And it says those come at best in second place. So your gifts and your talents, your birthplace, your financial situation, your nationality, your race, your SAT score, your shareholdings, it pushes all that back and says your core identity is this, chosen chosen by God, singled out by the grace of God. If you follow Jesus, it's because God chose you by his grace. Jesus said that to his disciples. He said, let's just be clear, it was not you who chose me, but I who chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit. The apostle Paul would talk about how we are chosen by God, by his grace before the foundation of the world that we would be holy and blameless before him in love. You ever stop and think about how did I come to faith in Jesus and who gets the glory? Who gets the ultimate glory? Are we gonna get to heaven and thank ourselves because we, we know how to spot a good deal when we see it? Or are we gonna get to heaven and say, thank you, Jesus. <laughs> thank you, Father for choosing me. Thank you, Jesus, for dying for me. Thank you, Spirit, for bringing salvation to my doorstep, for, turning the, for hitting the lights so that I could see the glory in the face of Jesus Christ. That's what you're gonna do. You're gonna get to heaven and you're gonna sing the praises of God for a billion years and we've just gotten started. It's a glorious gospel. The great preacher from the 1800s, Charles Spurgeon, he came to faith at the age of 16 and later on, he was reflecting on how he came to faith in Christ. And he walks you through his reflective process in these words. One weeknight, when I was sitting in the house of God, I was not thinking much about the preacher's sermon, for I did not believe it. The thought struck me, how did you come to be a Christian? I sought the Lord. But how did you come to seek the Lord? The truth flashed across my mind in a moment. I should not have sought him unless there had been some previous influence in my mind to make me seek him. I prayed, thought I, but then I asked myself, how came I to pray? I was induced to pray by reading the scriptures. How came I to read the scriptures? You see, he's getting further and further down. I did read them, but what led me to do so? Then in a moment I saw that God was at the bottom of it all and that he was the author of my faith, and so the whole doctrine of grace opened up to me, and from that doctrine I have not departed to this day, and I desire to make this my constant confession. I ascribe my change wholly to God. Is that the truth around which we gather this morning? Do you feel that in your bones when it's time to sing? I ascribe the change wholly to God. You did this. Don't know why I'll be singing about it for eternity, but you, you did this. And this amazement is picked up by characters throughout the Bible. David, in the Old Testament, never got over the mercy of God. Read Psalm 51. The Apostle Paul never got over the mercy of God. Read 1 Timothy one, where he tells his story. You keep coming down through church history all the way down through the ages. Augustine never got over the mercy of God. Newton never got over the mercy of God. John Newton, the author of Amazing Grace, one of my favorite historical heroes. And here's what he said. If I ever reach heaven, I expect to find three wonders there. First, to meet some I had not thought to see there. <laughs> Second, 
to miss some I had expected to see there. And third, the greatest wonder of all, to find myself there. The language that Peter is using in this passage, you might even see in your passages, they're bold words, and that's because he's dipping into Old Testament passages. He's quoting from places in the Old Testament, places like Isaiah chapter 43, for example. And, and what Peter is doing by pulling these Old Testament passages over here into his letter is he's doing something pretty controversial. He's taking language which was applied to Old Testament Israel, the people of God in the Old Testament, and he's extending it to refer to Jews and Gentile believers without drawing any distinction between those Jewish believers and those Gentile believers. Matter of fact, most of the majority of believers that Peter is writing to in this letter were Gentile Christians. They were Gentile believers, and yet Peter says, you see in verse 12, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. This is an identity thing. He's doing something very provocative. I, I can well imagine many in Peter's audience reading that and thinking, I think the old apostle must have missed his morning coffee because the people who are reading this letter are mostly Gentiles. Did he forget that most of us are Gentiles? Peter didn't forget anything. He's talking about identity. He's saying, you belong to God now. You're his people now. You're his one family now. You're part of God's one holy people, his one holy nation. You've been grafted into one vine. You're a part of one flock. Ephesians says that God has broken down the wall of division between Jew and Gentile, forming them into one people, one church. Paul would write in Galatians and say, there is neither Jew nor Greek. Those are provocative words. Neither slave nor free, male nor female. In other words, all the other identity markers are relativized compared to this one. You're God's people now. You're in his kingdom now. You've been transferred out of death and into life. Not only are we chosen by God, we are treasured by God. Treasured by God. And Peter, again, he's borrowing more Old Testament language. And this time, he's borrowing from Exodus chapter 19. Here's what Exodus 19 says. Now, therefore, God is speaking to his people. If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Tell me Peter's not thinking of those exact words. He's invoking Exodus 19. You think about the function of priest. He says, you're a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Peter says, yeah, that's what happened through the gospel. So just think for a second about the function of priest in the Old Testament. Priests had a particular function in the Old Testament, and priests came from a special family. You couldn't just say, hey, I'd like to be a priest. I'll volunteer. No, you, you come from the wrong family. If you're not a Levite, you can't serve. The, the, the tribe of Levi was set apart for special service in the temple. They offered sacrifices to God. And Peter, again, he's saying something really provocative here because he's saying under the new covenant, every follower of Jesus is a priest. Has full-time service to offer to the king. All believers in Christ, the priesthood of all believers, every believer on this side of the cross is called to be a priest in full-time service 
of God. What, what's the, you think about priests offer sacrifices. Well, what do we do? Do we, do we offer sacrifices? And the answer is no and yes. In the Old Testament sense, no. Lambs and goats are safe from now on. Now that the one final lamb has been offered and sacrificed and the one final priest is the one who offered it, the great high priest, Jesus himself, lambs are not slain anymore for remission of sins. So what sacrifice do we offer as priests? And Paul says, I'll give you one. Present your bodies as living sacrifices. Therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, I urge you, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship. This is the new incense that rises from the priests of God as the incense of a holy life consecrated to the Lord. It's not an unblemished goat that's set apart as an act of worship. It's you now set apart. Christian, God has laid claim to your entire existence. There's nothing that's off limits from him. It's an identity thing. You're not what you were before. Your hands aren't yours anymore. Your feet aren't yours anymore. Your mouth isn't yours anymore. Your lungs aren't yours anymore. They all belong to God. Your money's not yours anymore. It belongs to God. He's claimed you by creation and now by redemption. You're twice claimed if you're in Christ. Verse 10, look at that language, identity language. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. He's saying you're his now. You belong to him now. Love how the Apostle Paul echoes this in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 8. For you were, look at these words, you were once darkness. Not you did dark things. It's what you were. Your identity was bone deep darkness. You were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. And notice, that's the indicative. Here's the imperative. Walk as children of light. Since it's what you are, what else are you going to do? Walk as children of light, because that's what you are. For the fruit of the light consists of all goodness, righteousness, and truth. You see how the Bible is saying, contrary to our culture, don't live like you're in darkness as if that's you being authentic. Because you're light now if you've put your trust in Jesus. You were darkness, now you're light. In other words, become in practice what God made you by grace. That's where you flourish. That's where brand new continues, right? We have this gospel identity, and it's the engine of gospel mission. So gospel identity is you belong to God. Gospel mission is let the world see it. Let the world see it. Look at verse 11. Dear friends, I urge you as strangers and exiles to abstain from sinful desires that wage war against the soul. It's called a holiness. Verse 12, conduct yourselves honorably among the Gentiles. Out in the world, among those who don't know Christ, among those who uh, don't belong to God at this point, he's saying, conduct yourselves honorably among them so that when they slander you as evildoers, they will observe your good works and will glorify God on the day he visits. You see that word 
so that up there in verse nine. Chosen race, royal priesthood, holy nation, people for his possession, so that you may proclaim the praises. That word so that is there for a reason. That word so that in so many of the places that it occurs is the Bible becoming practical. That's, that's a big idea lacing up its tennis shoes. It is, it is a, a massive theological truth that's coming into everyday life. Gospel identity informs gospel mission, propels, empowers gospel mission. And so Peter, in, in our passage, he's moving back and forth from gospel identity to gospel purpose, gospel identity to gospel mission. You've been chosen so that, so that what? Verse nine, so that you may proclaim Chosen so you would speak. You see that? Identity, mission. Gospel proclamation springs out of gospel illumination. So what happens here? He says, you've been called by this God out of darkness into light. That's illumination. That's regeneration, right? So God turns the lights on. Now we can see, and now it's time to start talking about what God has done. Notice that Peter brings... In this passage, he's bringing both the words of believers and the actions and conduct of believers into the mission of the gospel. Look at verse 11 again. I'll just read it to you. Verse 11, dear friends, I urge you as strangers and exiles to abstain from sinful desires that wage war against the soul. So as a life of godliness, conduct yourselves honorably among the Gentiles so that when they slander you as evildoers, they'll have to roll that back, right? They slander you as evildoers, but they're gonna observe your good works and will glorify God on the day he visits. So what's the point? The point is this. God uses the conduct of his people to silence skepticism and turn critics into worshipers. So that they, seeing your good works, will glorify God on the day that he visits. It sounds like he's quoting someone, right? If you're familiar with Matthew chapter five, where Jesus said, let your light so shine before men that they would see your good works and Glorify your Father who is in heaven. Peter's he's, he's invoking those words that he heard years, 30 years earlier, and he's remembering the words of his Savior. What's he saying basically in verse 11 and 12? He's saying there, there's supposed to be a kind of magnetism about a godly life in this world. When a believer in Christ walks in forgiveness, when a believer isn't tangled up in bitterness, when a believer speaks the truth in love, when a believer walks in integrity, it authenticates the message that we proclaim. And Peter speaks to believers as his word, sojourners in this world. I urge you as strangers and exiles in verse 11. So having new life this world feels less like home. And that makes sense, right? That's why the Apostle Paul would say, your citizenship is where? In heaven. <laughs> That's where you belong. That's where your deepest bonds are. That's where the, the policies of the kingdom under which you live is the policies of the kingdom of God, the policies of the kingdom of heaven, not the kingdoms of this world. Friends, the reason this world feels so inhospitable as we live out our gospel mission is precisely because of our gospel identity. 
You're children of God and you live in a world that's inhospitable to the Father's throne, to the Father's rule, to the Father's reign. And so Peter's saying, keep your conduct honorable among the Gentiles. Show them the ways of the family, the people of God. The word for honorable there in verse 12, it has an aesthetic quality to it. In other places, that same Greek word would be translated beautiful. It's the word kalos, from which we get the English word calligraphy. So calligraphy is just a mashup of two Greek words, a word that means beautiful and a word that means writing. Beautiful writing, kalos graphe, two words smashed together. Peter's not talking about beautiful writing. He's talking about beautiful living, commendable living, exemplary living. He's talking about an inner quality of life that's attractive and magnetic and gets the attention of the world. I would just need to drop in and nuance that for a second. Does that mean that this is a guarantee that a life of godliness is going to make the world love Jesus? To which the answer is no. (laughs) The old statement that's the same sun that hardens clay melts butter. We, we can't manage the effects of what a godly life is going to do in this person and that person who sees our lives. Some will hate it and others will be drawn. That's why the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, he says, our message and our way of life is to some a stench of death leading them further into death. But he says to others, our same message, same way of life is a fragrance of life leading them to life. We can't manage the effects, but we live a godly, exemplary, commendable life and we let the chips fall. We don't know how that lands, but we know what faithfulness means. So we've been practicing and preparing for and training for preparation for the world games, for example, right? We were just praying about, Chip was just leading us in prayer about that. But for for weeks, there's been effort to prepare members of our church, our church staff, to work in the city, to welcome those who are coming here for the world games. The world has come to our city, and we wanted to be ready for that to happen. And so even, even these past few days, since the opening ceremony, and for the next several days, Brook Hills was waiting. Brook Hills is serving, I was there at the opening ceremony the other day, and even walking around, I'd see Brook Hills people all over the place, knowing even that morning there were Brook Hills servants and volunteers all over the place, driving athletes places and serving them and befriending them and taking interest in their lives and taking interest in their culture. Dennis Blythe, our executive pastor, uh, he's a personal driver and attache for the largest Japanese sumo wrestler on the planet, a guy, a legend named Yama. Um, and Dennis and Yama are practically best friends now. I mean, they're, they're posing for wrestling moves. I'm not going to put up a picture because uh, we're in church. But, uh, <laughs> but he and Yama are just having the time of their lives. And he's, he's welcoming this man and this team and others who he's been around. Dennis, look, just a sidebar. Dennis posts are giving the internet life right now. So I would just strongly encourage, if you don't follow Dennis, follow Dennis. It's just the joy to see your brothers and sisters, not just him, but others, your brothers and sisters out in our city saying, come on in. We're family, we're friends, come on in. We'll show you where all the good restaurants are, right? You gotta feed Yama. Uh, if Yama's gonna win, gotta feed him some ribs, gotta get some good stuff in him, Right? It's a beautiful thing. That's what we're called to. 
I just want to brag on, on you, because so many of you are serving in that way. Some are attending and, and are there to engage, but many are volunteering. I, I understand that Brook Hills has one of the largest representations of any organization in the city, of just our people showed up and continue to show up. And not just us, there are churches all over our city, Christians all over our city are there to love our city, to welcome the nations, to welcome graciously, to look for ways to share the hope that we have in Jesus. It's, it's gospel identity informing gospel mission. Peter captures the motivation for all of that and here's what he's saying. Christian witness is an overflow of Christian worship. Christian witness is an overflow of Christian worship. We've been called out of darkness into light so that we may proclaim the praises of the one who did it, who called us out of darkness into light. Think about passages in the Psalms, like Psalm 96, where it says, declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous deeds among all peoples. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous deeds among all peoples. Is that psalm talking about worship or evangelism? And the answer is yes. It's talking about both of them. It's evangelism fueled by worship. It's evangelism fueled by amazement. We don't need less gospel and more command. We need more gospel so that we will obey the commands gladly. The Apostle Paul said, you want to know what explains my apostolic fervency? The love of Christ constrains me. That's what explains it. It's not the threats of Christ that make him run in the direction of the world primarily. He said, it's the love of Christ that constrains me. The love of Christ explains the gospel spreading efforts of the early church. If the gospel gets in to our bloodstream, it creates a missional people. It's been doing that for 2,000 years. It's what brand new involves for the church of Jesus Christ. We see what our sins deserve. We see the full weight of our punishment landing on Jesus Christ crucified. And what happens next when we see that with the eyes of faith is Worship, <laughs> and one of the implications of that worship and directions of that worship is mission. It's not just mission, so worship involves what we do when we gather. Worship involves what we do when we obey God from the heart. Worship involves what we do when we declare his glory in the world. Worship involves what we do when we adorn the gospel by the way we live and through our conduct. Friends, if God doesn't do something supernatural, there are no techniques in the world that will generate brand new lives. No methods. We got no tricks up our sleeve. We have a gospel. That's it. It's all we have. It's all we need, <laughs> and it's all we have. You think about a couple of applications. Let me drop into that for a second. So we could shout at unbelievers until we're blue in the face, and guess how many of them will believe? None of them. We can shout at unbelievers till we're blue in the face, and none of them will believe until. 2 Corinthians 3 and 4, until God pulls back the veil that has blinded their eyes from seeing the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. 
not just unbelievers, we can shout at believers all day. We can shout at believers until we're blue in the face and none of them will live in full abandonment to his mission until they're struck by a sense of the wonder and beauty of God. Which means what? It means if Christians aren't going and sharing and making disciples, don't rebuke them. Show them the glory of Christ. Address the root issue. Open our eyes again to who God is. John Owen, the greatest minds of the 17th century Puritan movement. And John Owen said this. He was relating the revelation of God through his word and the mission of God in the world. He said this, clear shining from God must be at the bottom of deep laboring with God. What is the reason that so many in our days set their hands to the plow and look back again? Begin to serve God in great things but cannot finish? Give over in the heat of the day? Answer, they never had any such revelation of the mind of God upon their spirits, such a discovery of his excellence as might serve for a bottom of such undertakings. Friends, there are dangers if our missional urgency gets disconnected from our delight in God. If we don't, Brook Hills, if we don't keep our first love, if we lose a sense of awe at who God is, and what God has done, it's just a matter of time before our glad-hearted obedience gives way to self-righteous religion. If we lose our awe at the greatness of God and what he has done for us in Christ, it's only a matter of time before missional burden gives way to missional burnout. We have to keep our first love. What we need is a gospel that deepens our delight in God and motivates us to make his name famous in the world. What we need to remember is what this passage reminds us of, that we've been found by the grace of God and God's grace turns the found into the finders. That's where brand new comes full circle. Brand new comes full circle when God turns the found into the finders. You think about our mission You know what would bring great glory to God? Is if every Christian in this city lived in such a way that non-Christians in our community would be forced to say, in Birmingham, Christianity changes people's lives. Something in the water. Those Christians there, they've been captured by something. They live differently. If everyone who calls this church home would live in such a way that non-Christians around us would have to acknowledge at that local church, those are strange people. They're, They're strangely humble. They're strangely compassionate. They're strangely merciful. They're strangely kind. And the result would be, this is the glorious prospect Peter holds out in front of us, is that on the day of visitation, when our royal king comes and sets up headquarters in the new heavens and new earth, those who today don't believe will be with us proclaiming his glory when he gets here. Proclaiming the excellence of the king who called them out of darkness and into light. What's happening here in this text? What's the dynamic of brand new that's going on in this passage is this. Having made us new, 
God then turns us around and shows the world his power to save and transform lives for his glory.